Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. On the front lines of California's wildfires, teams of incarcerated people work alongside free world crews to stop our state's increasingly dangerous forest fires. They make a fraction of the pay to confront the same dangers and show the same bravery. In a new book, Breathing Fire, Jamie Lowe paints a deep portrait of one particular group of incarcerated women firefighters, delving into how they got to prison, what they do to work themselves out, and what happens when the fires end and they're back out in the world. We'll talk with Lowe and two of the firefighters she chronicles in the book about life inside and out. That's all next on Forum, after this news. with a routine fire in our fire-prone state, a small blaze near Malibu. A team of incarcerated women pile into a buggy and head for the danger, looking to cut a line to stop the advance of the flames. Among them is Shauna Lynn Jones, 22, and just weeks from getting out of jail. As they worked the job, getting paid nearly nothing, Shauna Lynn Jones was hit in the head by a boulder and died. She was fighting a fire in Malibu early Thursday when she was struck by a boulder. In a statement, the CDCR said her death is a tragic reminder of the danger inmate firefighters face when they volunteer to confront fires to save lives and homes. For years after this moment, Lowe got deeper and deeper with the incarcerated women firefighters of our state, and we're now joined by her and Jessica, one of the women who was out on the line that night. Welcome to the show, Jamie Lowe. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Alexis. And also, Jessica, welcome to you. And in the book, 
you were also known as Carla for those who've read it. And we just wanted uh, listeners also to know that we are using just your first name um, as uh, Jamie Lowe did in the book. Uh, welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Jessica, I want to start with you. I I know you were close to Shauna. How did you get to know her? Um, we actually arrived to camp a day apart. So she was slept next to me her entire term. Oh, wow. And what was it like when, when you arrived? It was quiet. There was no one there. Uh, the crews were out working, so it was just me and her and the new arrivals on the other dorm. Oh, wow. And so um, when you show up at a camp like this, um, you've been transferred from another facility, right? From the state prison. Yeah. And um, when you get there, how does it look like when you what do you remember of like coming up to this camp in Malibu? It looks like freedom, the closest thing to freedom compared to where you actually were prior. Mm -hmm. There's trees, there's mountains, there's a a bed with a mattress. (laughs) We didn't have a mattress in jail. You get like this kind of foam padded thing. Mm -hmm. And in camp, you actually get like a regular mattress and some better blankets. So that was something I noticed. Are you like under trees? Is it like, is it actually like, would you be, if I were to see it or anybody would see it, would you go like, oh, it's kind of beautiful? Yes, you would think it's beautiful. It's almost like a park setting. Wow. And um, what were the different positions on the firefighting crew? So you have uh, Swamper, that's the lead of the crew, and she basically sits up front with the foreman. And then you have first saw, first bucker, second saw, second bucker, and then the rest of the hook line, which would be two Pulaski's, and then the rest would be McLeod's, and then and, Jackson. And what are they, you know, like the saws, I imagine what they do, right? I mean, they're cutting the brush. And then the buckers are taking that brush and, like, getting rid of it, right? What are the people doing sort of at the back of the line then? They're scraping the dirt, making sure that it's bare mineral soil so that if the jump, if the fire decides to jump, it doesn't burn any fuel. God, God. Um, before you actually get out on the line, um, what kind of sort of physical and kind of firefighting training did you have to do? We had to do a timed hike. You also have to do timed push-ups, timed sit-ups, timed um, hikes. Running. Like a lot, a lot of push-ups. What was the? What are? Give yeah. me some of the numbers here. Oh, <laughs> uh, you would do. I think it's about. You have to do about fifty under two minutes, and then you have to do a mile under ten minutes, and then you have to get your hike under twenty-eight minutes, I believe, and. Then you have to do push-ups. I think you have to do also either 30 or 50 under like a minute. Yeah. Um, and then your firefighting training, what what did that involve? Did you actually get to like do some test fires or did you just sort of learn about it like, you know, through videos or, or other ways? So when we're in the actual institution, all they do is train you vigorously every single day. So every single day, you're just running push-ups, sit-ups, anything that you can do. The whole day, they assign you to other inmates, like lifer inmates. And those lifer inmates get the opportunity to just work you out all day long from, like, 7 a.m. to, like, 
I don't know, like three. And you're just working out, working out. And then after that, after you pass that state, you go into the classroom, they call it, and we basically read. You um, you learn about your tens and nines, which is like the lookouts and everything that the firefighters know. And then you take a written exam. And after you pass the written exam is when you get your gate pass to leave the institution and take your time hike. Got it. Um, did you, what were the relationships like between the people who were on your crew? Um, I would say we were pretty good on the line, but we did fall out a lot. We, it was, it was tension. There was a lot of tension. Oh. And what about your relationship with, with Shauna? Was there tension there or were you guys tight? No, we were, we were good. We slept next to each other. She was kind of like the glue for the crew since the crew, the crew was mostly, Hispanics and Blacks. Uh, she was the only Caucasian, so she was the one that would always crack joke between us so that try to make us kind of get along. And um, you guys also worked really closely together on the line too, right? Oh, yeah. She was my partner. Yeah. Maybe, and I, I know it may be difficult, but can you tell us about the the night that Shauna died? Yeah. Um, do you want to know the scene or just from the beginning? I mean, may- maybe give it to us from the beginning, however you would tell it. Okay. Um, well, we woke up and we got off the buggy. We were in the buggy and, the, and when we were in the buggy, everybody was kind of groggy, um, kind of frustrated because we had been getting on and off calls. And after that, um, we got on the bus and... You know, it somebody it sounded like somebody farted and it started smelling and Shauna was like, Who did that? And it was so funny, like just everything that happened and then she was getting nervous. She was asking, like, Oh, what's gonna happen? We were telling her, like, Oh, everything's fine, you know, you're gonna be okay. She was nervous because the flames were really high. Once we got there she was able to see that the fire was probably like I don't know, like thirty feet high. It was really big flames. Yeah. And um after that, she, um, we got off, and I'm telling her, like, it's okay, you know, you're going to feel like you can't breathe, but you're going to be fine. So Bailey's, like, hurrying us up out of the car, and it's pitch black outside. So we go outside. As soon as you, get, as soon as you go outside, you can immediately start, um, like, inhaling the smoke that's burning. So uh, the girls are kind of, like, freaking out, the ones that haven't been on actual live fires. And they're like, you know, is this normal? I feel like I can't breathe. And there's a thing that's called a shroud. It's attached to your helmet, and you can unfold it and put it over your face, kind of like a face covering so that uh-huh. you can breathe better. Got it. Kind so of protects her, hey, you, know, you a little bit. Right. So I tell her, hey, put your shroud down. You know, you're going to be okay. Just put it down so you can feel like you're you're kind of protected from your face. And then she's like, okay. So then we start going in. We get two spot fires. Uh, spot fires are when, like, the wind picks up the embers and it jumps over where you're initially cutting. And then now you have to run out, and like, in case of emergency. And then you got to come back in and try to go around that fire now. So that happened to us twice, and we ran out. We ran out really fast, and um, we came back in. When we tied in with the crew, with the male crew, they told us, oh, we're done, you know, we're going to go do a bathroom break, and then we might go back to camp. So we go do the bathroom break. After the bathroom break, we're informed that we're actually going to go start cutting line behind um, one of the male crews. So Mm -hmm. we're okay. We so at that at that moment I was second saw I was second sawyer on the crew. Boss tells me boss is Bailey and he's the captain of the crew and he tells us, Hey, 
he tells me, hey, I, you know, I need you to give your salt to Shauna. And in the camp world, you never give up your salt, no matter how tired, no matter if you're throwing up, you don't give it up. It's kind of a prideful thing. And I'm like, no, I don't want to give it up because this is a baby fire to me. I've been on way bigger fires. I don't want to give up my salt. I'm not going to give it. And he's like, you have to give it. I'm giving you a direct order. And when they say they're giving you a direct order, you have to absolutely do what they tell you or they add more time to your sentence. So I said, okay, fine. If you're going to if you're gonna tell me that you're giving me a direct order, fine, I'll give it to her. So she saw that I was upset and she was like, I'm sorry, Jess, you know, I just have to. And I'm like, okay, fine, here, get it. So we, we traded tools and then we started going up the mountain. And she was struggling a lot. She couldn't carry the saw. The saw weighs about 20 pounds on its own. Plus, we have our backpack, water, gasoline, mm-hmm. other stuff in our backpacks. Um, so I said, um, I saw her struggling. She was. It was a big slope, so she was kind of sliding back down. And the girls were complaining, like, hey, we want to go up. We're sliding off. We're sliding off. So I told her, hey, you know, can you hike? And she's like, no, I can't. And I told her, give me the saw. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, just give me, the, give me my saw back. So I get my saw back and I switch line. I switch positions with her again. So now I'm in front of her again. And um, so we go up and then Bailey's like, what's going on? Why is there a gap? Because we ha- there was a gap between the first two girls since Shauna stopped because she couldn't hike with it. And then we go up and he sees that I have her tool, my tool, and the other stuff in my backpack. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm helping her. She couldn't hike, you know? And he's like, okay, he's like, okay, then give her back her tool and we're going to start trenching. So then he sends me the second saw and the first saw forward because there's nothing for us to cut. It's all dirt that they need to scrape. So he sends us forward and we go up to this like slope by a cliff. And then he has the girls um, trenching. And as they're finishing, he's, sign- he's telling them to go up to where we are to wait for him to arrive. Um, as, we're, as we're waiting there, we notice that there's a cliff. And we're like, oh, my God, this cliff is like, we could fall off. It was literally like dirt and brush that was holding us up. So we step to the side where the actual mountain is. Shauna comes up. And hey, Jessica, she's amazing. Before you, like, be- before you keep uh, continue with this story, because I know we're, we're about to get, we have to take a, a short break. Um, and you can finish telling us the story when we get back. Um, just want to remind listeners, we're talking with Jamie Lowe and Jessica, one of the firefighters. She featured in her book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. And we want to hear from you. If you have experience fighting wildfires and what questions do you have about the way California uses inmate firefighters, you can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And we'll be back with more with Jamie Lowe and Jessica. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jamie Lowe and Jessica, one of the firefighters featured in her book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. Before we went to the break, Jessica was telling us the story uh, about the night, one of the most fateful nights uh, in her life um, when one of her friends um, died on the line. Um, Jessica, just to reset for, for listeners, you all have been kind of fighting a, a brush fire, kind of going back up and down this hill, and you've sort of been stopped, and you're now um, kind of right, right by kind of a cliff where you don't have a lot of room to move around. Sorry, I had, we had to interrupt you. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, so we're waiting for we're waiting for our captain to come up as lo- along with the rest of the crew, and we're standing there, and Shauna just looks over, and she's like, wow, this is what I get for wishing for an out-of-county, right? Because she was drenched in sweat. She was so tired. And um, I started feeling these rocks, like little pebbles, fall down. And some of them are they're probably falling around 100 feet high. Some of them are falling, and they're starting to hurt because they're, like, going... They're hitting our gloves and our, like, um, our, our fire suits. Yeah. And when we can feel it through the suits, we also we have, like, probably two or three sets of clothing on, so... If it's going through that, I know that it's really pretty painful. And so I tell the first girl in line, I tell her, hey, can you move over, you know, so that um, the rocks can stop hitting us. And she's like, no, you know, the slope, I don't want to move over. You know, they're going to come right now. So then, and I turned around. And when I turned around, the rock came and, like, hit Shauna right in the head. It wasn't a rock. It was a boulder, the big, like, big basketball-looking boulder. Did you know right away that she had been killed? No. She just, like, I just felt something kind of touch my backpack, and um, I immediately heard the girl screaming, she's dead, and screaming. And at first I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I didn't think of it as a joke, but I just thought it was like, what is she doing, you know? Like, why did she do this? Like, And I turn around, and I see her laying down, and I'm just like, Shauna, like, and I, and I'm looking at her, and I see her, her eyes are closed, she looks like she's, like, sleeping, and then I get closer, and I'm like, Shauna, get up, like, and I see her, and I'm just like, okay, she's not, in my mind, I'm like, okay, she's not gonna get up, like, at this point, I can see that blood starting to come out of her nose, and her ears, and her mouth, you know, she's starting to turn blue, and I start going after my crew because my crew's going down this slope and um I'm trying to like I know that they're not paying attention to the to the slope that we that we were standing at, the cliff that you can fall off of. So uh I go over there, I'm trying to help them. Um, we're trying to get the attention of the other firefighters because our captain is on the top now. He's trying to help Shauna and I turn around and I look at Shauna and her helmet. She always wore her chin strap. So her helmet was kind of to the side, but like blood was like leaking out of her head. And um, yeah. So at that point, we just um, one of the girls started trying to do CPR on her. The other girls, one of the captains, took them down. Mm-hmm. He told he told them, "Oh, go ahead and take my crew down." You know. So the girls went down, and me, um, and two other girls, and the girls that were trying to give her CPR stayed at the top. And Bailey, our captain, was trying to order us down, but we didn't want to leave. And um, the, the helicopter, he called the helicopter down. They brought the helicopter and the stretcher, and they started trying to airlift her. 
and they took her. Yeah. Jamie Lowe, just so Jessica has a has a minute here. How did you first hear um, about this uh, tragic death? Um, well, first, thanks, Jessica, for having to relive that. that yeah, thank you. Like, it was hard the first time. I know when you talked about it with me, and it's got to be really, really oh, hard God. to think about it all the time. Um, but I first read about Shauna's death. Uh, death in the LA Times I was just home uh, I was at my mom's house I was paging through the B section and came across like a 500 word story and it really struck me for obvious reasons um, one there was this program that even though I was born and raised in California I had never heard of incarcerated firefighters and I know those hills, I know those trails, but I didn't know that they were maintained by fire crews. I didn't know there were camps throughout the state. I didn't know that, you know, up to like 30% of the wildland fire crew is made up of incarcerated firefighters. And I really wanted to know more about the program. The other thing that really struck me was that Shauna was really described in just a couple sentences and her life was sort of, you know, synopsized by her crime and that she was from Lancaster. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I just needed to know more about her. I wanted to know as much as I could about who she was and kind of understand who she was better because I wanted, I just, needed to know for some reason yeah jessica what was the what what did you want to make sure that jamie knew about shauna when you first started talking with her that she literally loved what she did you know like um her being there the time that she'd be there she would talk about like continuing forestry and i felt like everybody was just kind of like oh you know she was an inmate she was doing time and it's like, yes, but if you really look at everybody that was in there, she was one of the better ones <laughs> than everybody else that was there. So she wasn't just an inmate. She was like the better inmate from everybody else that was there. She was never rude to the cops, never rude to the captains, you know? Yeah. She's um, a good girl. Yeah. Jamie, this is a pretty complicated program, right? Because on on one level, people have to work really hard to get into the program. There's all this physical training. And on the other hand, it's not exactly volunteering in the way that like going to the food bank is volunteering for someone in the free world, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's um, the use of the word volunteer, I think, is kind of... Um, it's not quite the right use of the word because I think that you're essentially trying to escape, you know, Jessica described the bed that she had to sleep on when she was in jail or in state prisons, but there's, you know, there's sexual predators who are correctional officers. There are fights that are happening on the yard constantly. There's terrible food. There's, you know, rats and mice in the food, which actually Jessica, I think you told me about because you worked in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like then, there's poop yeah. on the food. Oh. I mean, and like, they're just like, oh, just shake it off, just shake it off. <laughs> so you're yeah. you're you're not volunteering so much as trying to escape this horrendous, inhumane uh, reality that is, you know, it's 
you're risking your life to not be in really, really terrible circumstances. And there are really good parts of the program, but there are a lot of parts that are that are complicated. We're talking with Jamie Lowe and Jessica, one of the firefighters featured in her book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. And we do want to hear from you. I mean, do you have experience fighting wildfires? What questions do you have about the way California uses inmate firefighters? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Jamie, you know, we, we know how Jessica herself got into this uh, program, but how did this start? How did inmate firefighting in general become uh, something that's such a major part of our wildland um, firefighting labor? system. Sure. So actually inmate crew and inmate labor is incredibly tied to the building and the infrastructure and the building out of California. Um, From very early on, inmate labor was used to, you know, lay fields in agriculture, to lay Sunset Boulevard, the PCH, uh, Topanga, Canyon Boulevard, many, many of those serpentine roads. Mm-hmm. Up um, those were all inmate crews. And beyond that, like the fire crews started in World War II when young men went off to war and they needed somebody to replace the firemen who were at war. And Governor Pat Brown established fire camps. And he was so impressed with the success of the program in his mind. This uh, is Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. The senior Brown, (laughs) Um, the first Brown. Uh, They um, they were so successful because he felt like it gave the crews a sense of purpose. This was in 1946 that Um, And it also saved the state a ton of money. And so we expanded the program, kept it going after World War II. And it's been going since 46. In 1983, uh, three women camps were opened um, because there was a situation where when you volunteer or quote unquote volunteer for fire camp, there's the possibility that you can shave time off of your sentence um, it doesn't always work out that way, and but there was discriminatory practices because women weren't allowed to necessarily qualify for the same mm. possibility. And so in 83, those camps opened. I see. Um, Jessica, did you think about how your labor was being used? Like, did you think of yourself as being in the system like that? Or were you just kind of glad to get out of the women's prisons into the camps? It was both. I was Mm -hmm. happy to leave, but then I wasn't happy to leave because in honest and all honesty, like the girls don't really get paid, you know, they don't get paid. Mm -hmm. So I would feel like, why are we like busting our butts if we're not even getting paid? And some of the, not our fire captains, but sometimes you get substitutes or some, and they're like kind of rude. Like they'll say, oh, why should we even pay you guys if you guys are criminals and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it's pretty, you're already in a low place. Like, you don't need someone to make you feel any lower. Yeah. So you guys, I would be like, you know yeah. what? I could just be in prison and not have to deal with this. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, because the money was basically you got like a a certain amount of money per day and then you got a dollar per hour that you were fighting on the line, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what did that really add up to? Like when you when you got out, did you have like a a substantial chunk of money in the bank or or is it just like there was nothing there when you got out? I wish. <laughs> no, I paroled. I paroled with like $600. But mm. honestly, my family always took care of me. So I didn't have that problem. But there was girls that were my friends that I would see that, you know, a lot of these girls, they take care of themselves, their family, they're, they're repeated offenders. You know, some of them, they keep coming back and, you know, their families are done with them. They're not looking out for them. And um, they they survive off of what they make on these fires. And some of them, Believe it or not, some of them, you know, they always say there's too many chiefs, not enough Indians. A lot of them take that job to heart. When they're there, they're there to work. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, I'm working, I'm working. And it sucks because sometimes they don't get the recognition that I feel like they should because even though they've made mistakes in their lives, they are hardworking girls. Yeah. Did you think you might go into firefighting when you got out or were you like, no, this is a job. I'm doing it. I like having like visits in Malibu instead of in prison, and I, I'm done when I'm done. <laughs> no, I I did. I did want to pursue it. Um, I I did get a little scared after the Shauna incident. I would feel um, scared going to like mountains that had rocks that I felt were gonna fall or that mm. looked like they were loose or stuff. Even to the day when I go hiking, if I'm too close to the rock walls, I'm like, okay, let me just go over here because. <laughs> I yeah. feel, like, really uncomfortable. But, no, I did want to pursue it. I did want to pursue it. My captains wrote me letters. Um, I had different recommendation letters ready. Um, I applied, and I wanted to actually go, but my parole officer didn't give permission because she said it was too soon. It was mm. too soon for me to get out and get out of Alley County, and I had to go all the way to, like, up north, I think, like, seven hours away. So she was like, no, there's no way, not right now. Um, Jamie, how often do women like Jessica actually, or how often are they able to actually get jobs firefighting on the outside? It's pretty rare, um, especially because Cal Fire requires EMT and EMS or EMR licenses. And up until uh, December when AB 2147 was passed, uh, you had to wait 10 years to apply for those licenses. And so there was a 10 year gap between when you were a firefighter and incarcerated firefighter, and then when you could then apply. And reentry is a fairly insurmountable and complicated process. And it's complicated enough without having to then navigate these systems to apply for jobs. Um, yeah. can, you, can you talk a little bit about the bill? Because I remember when it was signed, it was sort of, you know, trumpeted as this way of sort of helping our, you know, uh, these incarcerated people who'd done great service to the state during like a very brutal wildfire season. Um, but it seems like it's really been a mixed bag as a policy. Sure. Um, It is, uh, I think it's a step in the right direction. It acknowledges that there has to be an evolution and that the program has to change and that what happens after the program has to change. But it doesn't do quite enough, in my opinion. What it's meant to do is expedite expungement so that a formerly incarcerated firefighter can not, can 
you know, expunge their record and be able to apply for these licenses, redo the training, and then apply for the jobs at CAL FIRE and municipal agencies. The problem is, is that there's a lot of discretionary hurdles. They have to get the judge to, you know, actually expedite the expungement. They have to have a DA not appeal the decision if it is granted. They then have to go through all of the paperwork of applying to these agencies. And the agencies actually have to hire them. And even though your record is expunged, your criminal record actually still shows up when your employer is searching. So you still have that mark um, and there's no, there's no one actually collecting data about who will benefit from the bill. So there's actually no way to know if formerly incarcerated firefighters are gonna, you know, re- if anything is actually gonna be effective. Yeah, it seems like it's an extremely complicated way of doing something fairly simple, which is people have trained for this wildfire fighting job, but merely as inmates, it seems like there could be a clear path into um, what's a, uh, obviously a very necessary job for the state. Yeah, there should be a clear path, and it's not a clear path. I think that there is a lot of sort of entrenched discrimination in various different agencies, and it's hard to get past that. Yeah. Um, Are there other states that do this in a better way, Jamie? There are other states that do this. I would not necessarily say it's in a better way because I don't think that, I think firefighting just in general is an incredibly emotionally and physically taxing job. It's one of the hardest that there is right now. It's the front lines of the climate crisis. And to do that while you're a prisoner and dealing with the issues that you have to deal with while you're incarcerated, it seems like uh, absurd to me. Like it just, it's a really, um, it doesn't seem like it's possible or the right thing to do for anyone. We're talking with Jamie Lowe and Jessica, one of the firefighters featured in her book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about the way California uses inmate firefighters? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, we'll talk about what new evidence about the Delta coronavirus variant means for unvaccinated children. Plus, author Shugri Saeed Saul joins us. Her new book chronicles her childhood as a nomadic goat herder in Somalia and her migration to California. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jamie Lowe and Jessica, one of the firefighters featured in her book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. Uh, Jessica, I, I wanted to hear about your life since you got out. Um, what what sort of barriers did you find um, on on the outside, and uh, where, where are you now in your life? Um, sure. Um so when I got out, I had a friend, a really good friend that was working at Denny's, and I asked her, hey, you know, are you guys hiring? I'll take any shift. And she's like, yeah, actually, we're hiring graveyard shifts. And so it was easy to get that job because they nobody wanted to work graveyards. So <laughs> they hired me on the spot. And uh, so I got that job two weeks out. So two weeks of paroling, I got the job, and my parole officer was super happy. She's like, girl, I've had people on here for three years that haven't found a job. And I'm like, yeah, so she, so I had her and she was like, okay, good, you know, stay in this job and I'll be able to get you off of parole early. I was supposed to stay on for three years. Mm -hmm. So with the job, I would be able to get off in two years. And uh, so I was in the job, but then I ended up leaving the job because, um, you know, graveyard shift is crazy. And I had some weird customer come and try to come in the restroom after me around like 4 a.m., and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go back to prison because he's not about to rape me or touch me or anything, you know. So um, I was just scared because I was just like, I don't know if I, if I could call the cops and I'm on parole and just say, you know, hey, um, I'm being harassed or something or if I was going to get in trouble. So we were able to take care of that situation. And then um, I got another job. And then at the other job, I was being sexually harassed by the customers again. Yeah. So I ended up having to get a lawyer and sue them, oh and we won. And after that, I got a different job. I was working there, but then their business closed down. And then after that, um, I got pregnant. So I moved over here to the Antelope Valley. Mm-hmm. And then after oh, when I had my baby, like a few months after having her, I just felt like I could not just stay at home. Every time I looked at my child, I was like, I need to give you a better future. So. I decided to take a eyelash extension course, and I am now an eyelash artist. I work for myself, and I am now also a microblading artist. So, oh wow, that's, that's nice yeah, that sounds good. And I'm God, I'm <laughs> sorry, sorry to hear about like a string of what seemed like just brutal. Yeah, no, I was just confused. Like, okay, this is the real world, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, people are crazy out here too. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. You, you know, uh, Jamie, we have a few comments basically talking about um, the kinds of jobs on the inside. Um, and I know that there are some um, jobs in the carceral system that pay a lot more than this. 
Um, and so why is it that, like, how is that actually come to, like, how much the, the inmates would be paid? Um, it was my understanding always that this was one of the higher paid jobs, actually. But the, the CDCR has a program, and I apologize for all the acronyms, but it's the corrections department's fault. Um, but they have a program called CCTRP, where you can actually, if you are considered a low-level crime, um, you can stay in a halfway house and then work with an um, ankle bracelet and be at like a Target or Home Depot or, you know, a regular store and make minimum wage. Um, but I think within prison industries and what CDCR runs, this is actually a fairly high paid job, but I don't know if there's a specific comment that you're referring to. Oh, they well, one comment was, Patricia tweets, to prevent exploitation, they should be paid at market rate. Otherwise, it's basically slave labor and exploitation. Oh, yes. OK, so that is to, to speak to what they should be paid versus what they're paid with in the system. They absolutely should be paid at least, you know, a minimum wage like what California Conservation Corps pays. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me that CCTRP works with private industry and has state prisoners working at their businesses and they're paid minimum wage, but the government does not have to pay the minimum wage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to add in Steve uh, from Pacifica. Hi, I uh, think, I don't care what the background of these women is. I think they show they have the right stuff. To me, they're heroes. And I think, what can we do as citizens to move this idea along of them getting a decent pay and getting a job after their service? Jamie Lowe? So I think one thing to do would be to keep pushing Governor Gavin Newsom to continue along the lines of AB 2147, but with a lot more and a lot quicker allowances for formerly incarcerated firefighters to get jobs immediately um, with less hurdles. I think that, um, I mean, I question the program entirely. I think that it probably needs to evolve as it is. And they have one camp called the Ventura Training Center, which is, it's all, it's for men right now, but they're hoping to include women at some point. But it actually is a program that trains formerly incarcerated firefighters. And the goal is to get them a job by the end of the training. And they're trained with CAL FIRE. Um, I think that if we can move towards the fire camps being not associated with CDCR and that it is an option for how to do your sentence. I don't know, do your sentence is not really English. Um, how to serve your time. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, making that actual choice rather than a kind of false choice would be an improvement. You know, another question I have is just about the sort of the future, kind of short and long-term future of this program, right? Because as I understand it, COVID actually reduced the numbers uh, of inmates who were fighting fires for a variety of reasons uh, related to the pandemic. But we also have climate change, which we 
believe will uh, introduce more fires and also decades of like mismanagement of our forests and all those things. So we imagine we'll have many more fires. Um, so in the future, are, are we anticipating that there'll be more reliance on um, uh, on inmates to fight fires? I honestly don't know. I've reached out to Governor Newsom's office. I've tried to kind of read the tea leaves about where this program is going. Um, it doesn't seem to be shifting that dramatically, though he shut down eight camps last year because of under-enrollment. And a lot of that was because so many of the incarcerated people who would have qualified to be a firefighter were released early because of the pandemic, because they did, he released, I think, 8,000 prisoners. Um, and so there were, there were just less people. They weren't transferring people. They weren't training people. The program pretty much shut down. And though in previous seasons, there's been a lot of sort of questioning about, well, why don't you have the money to pay incarcerated firefighters? And somehow last season, you know, they did hire 900 seasonal workers to replace the incarcerated firefighters that couldn't actually be out on the lines. Yeah. So the money is there. You know, Jessica... You, you know, you heard one of the comments from our one of our listeners calling, you know, exploitation and, and basically slave labor. Um, you also yourself wanted to be um, in this program. Like if if it were possible to, you know, get rid of this program, would you want that to happen or do you think it should remain in place? Mm, I feel like I'm with both answers only because for some people situations it is a better setting you know it is a better setting some people don't even eat the food that they serve at the camps and you know when we go on fires they do give us good food but um also I would say no because I honestly feel like some of the some of the free world staff is ungrateful that we're there that we're actually like busting our butts for like 24 hours 12 hours 16 hours and then they'll come back and then still like make comments to put people down or you know, make people feel worse than what they are. And then what I would tell the foreman, they don't understand that. We're out here on the line doing this. We're tired. We also have our problems from home. Our kids are home, our parents. And then we're also doing time. And they can add time whenever they want. Whenever they want, they can just give us a write-up and say, hey, oh, you're not doing this or you're not listening to an order. Now all we got to do is take it as Lieutenant Scott. And what is Lieutenant Scott? He adds time. Why? Because it's better for them, for us, for the bodies to stay there. And they tell us that you guys are just bodies. We just count bodies. Mm. Mm. And it's that, like, yeah. How uh, did that affect you, know? you? You think to be told that about yourself? Um, I honestly would just tell myself, like, hey, honestly, we could do time in prison and we could do time in camp. So we're doing time in, in camp because Grandma's happy, because Grandma's not crying when she comes visit, because Grandma's proud of you here. You know, mm. so I just sucked it up. Yeah. Melody writes, um, my dad was an inmate firefighter in the mid-90s. He described it much like Jessica did, way better than prison. He liked being out in nature, having something active to do, and that there was less supervision. It's interesting how shocked people are to hear about prisoner firefighters. I often hear people talk about it as a sort of forced labor, and I know in many ways it is, but the nuance is important. Many things outrage me about prisons, but I think the true outrage in this case is that prisoners cannot go on to be paid firefighters when they get out. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm. This also brings up another um, topic, which is, 
How different do you think the experience of male inmate firefighters is from the experience of the women that you worked with, Jessica? Oh, it's so different. I We always hear from cops and also the firefighters, we always hear that, oh, the men have it so much easier, oh, the men this. And I guess with the men, you know, they have their own rules, so they kind of run their own program, and the free world staff kind of follows whatever they're doing just to avoid any conflict. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the men have it so much easier. We noticed when we would go to stay, um, stay at their camp sometimes, like if we were at a, at a county and we had to sleep at a camp nearby, we would set up camp and set up tent, like, in their parking lot or wherever <laughs> they weren't at. Mm-hmm. And um, we, even the food that they would serve us, like, they have so much different food. And I don't know because, you know, guys eat more or whatever, but... <laughs> Um, they have like so much better food. They have so many more recreational activities. They have so much more board games and stuff for them to do mentally than the women do. Jamie, is that something that you, uh, you heard across the board? Yeah. And I think that, um, there's more of a history with men and firefighting in general. And I think, you know, the idea of like getting jobs when you're out of prison, it's just, even if you weren't a formerly incarcerated firefighter, it's really hard for women to succeed in the firefighting industry. It's not, a, it's a pretty discriminatory, historically, industry. Yeah. Um, so we know it's hard for uh, women and men who've been inmate firefighters to get jobs as firefighters. Um, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the whether or not it's easier to get a job you know, in other fields, having been an inmate firefighter, Jamie, and also maybe about your decision um, not to use uh, last names in the book. Uh, well, I'll start with the last question first. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I didn't use last names in the book because that's what, when I started interviewing the women that I decided I want to talk with, that was what was decided by them um, for the most part there, you know, I gave them the option. And part of that is that they, there was some fear that if you had your full name attached to your criminal history, that a future employer could know that. And the, the Google ability of it. Yeah. Exactly. And just that, you know, you don't know what the future brings and you might not want to be tied to having been incarcerated at all um so my feeling was and you know when I write for the New York Times magazine it's very strict the policy is generally you have to use full names unless someone is in jeopardy um but my feeling for this was I wanted the people I interviewed to feel comfortable actually sharing their stories and if this was the way that they felt comfortable that was fine um i trust what they're saying I trust everything that they're saying um the first question which I am now forgetting sorry we we can we can (laughs) we're talking about just the difficulty of getting jobs on the outside and whether or not it's it's uh easier to get other jobs even if not firefighting ones having been through this program um I think that you know from everyone that I spoke with there was some kind of changed and learned like there was a transformation that took place for a lot of people that I interviewed and there was sometimes like looking back on having to pull together as a crew and what and like having like sort of being forced to do that and what it felt like to do that what it felt like to look at a a containment line having done that 
Um, and so I think in some ways, maybe, but that's, that's definitely more of a question for the women who yeah. experienced it. I think it's hard in general to get jobs. You know, I think that Jessica, like she kind of, she worked really on my application, honestly. Really? <laughs> yeah. And you know, yeah, like, I would lie. And just say that you you hadn't been convicted of a crime or didn't have any felonies. Yeah, I asked my parole officer. She's like, yeah, just do what you have to do. That's fine. And she's like, if they do find it out, you know, you do have to tell them. And I'm like, well, but if they find it out, they already have my paperwork. So, yeah, Um, yeah, I just I would die and I would get through. You know, I, I try to be professional. I try to remember everything that I was taught in there about professionalism and work ethic and I try to apply that to whatever job I applied to, and I it worked. You know, I would get the job, and could good. you get your record expunged under the law that Gavin Newsom signed around inmate firefighting? I wish I could, but I'm a striker, so no. If you have strikes, you're never gonna get your record expunged. Uh, what do you think that the experience of fighting wildfires taught you about yourself? Mm, it really taught me so many different things, like how to work under pressure, how to deal with fatalities in front of my face, um, how to grow, how to get along with people that I don't get along with, at least in public. And um, <laughs> yeah, it just um, it really just helped me bring out that work ethic that I had underneath. Um, I learned what labor was and that I can actually work for. 30 hours or 24 hours if I need to, I pushed myself physically in ways that I never had before. And did it change the way you thought about wildfires too? Yes. I used to think, I used to tell um, the foreman all the time, like, I used to think you guys would just get off with your fire hose and the helicopter would just drop water. And they're like, no. And now I have like a total different respect for all firemen um, and women because I'm just like, wow, like, what you guys really do out there, cutting line is no joke, especially when you're hotlining and the it's an active fire. It is so hot. Your feet are burning. Like, it feels like you're, you don't even have boots on. And I think the boots make it hotter. But, yeah, and you have blisters and you're cut and you have to wear your long sleeves. You can never be in a short sleeve and it's really hot. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for their services and everything that they've ever done and do for us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing your story with us. I know that it has been uh, a very difficult um, time, and um, and we really do appreciate just hearing the reality of what it's like to be in one of these crews and to, to lose one of your friends. Uh, and thank you, Jamie Lowe, as well. Um, we have been talking about uh, your book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.